0: Well, good morning, Lakewood. If you're visiting this morning, we want to welcome you. We are so glad you're here to join us. We are in our summer in the Psalms with King David, and we are in Psalm 58. So we're going to continue in our worship. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, stand out of reverence and respect for God's holy and inspired Word. This is Psalm 58. Psalm 58. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge with equity, O sons of men? No. In heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you prepare a path for the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear. So that it does not hear the voice of charmers or skillful caster of spells. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouths. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. Like the miscarriages of a woman which never behold the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the living and the burning alike. The righteous will be glad when he beholds the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And surely men will say, and men will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on earth. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, in Psalm 57, last week, Matt showed us a more contemplative and tender-hearted David. We're familiar with, and we love that side of David in the Psalms, don't we? We know the David that said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As a deer pants for the water brooks, my soul pants for you, O oh God. He wrote beautifully, poetically, divinely inspired. After all, David was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. Well, that's not the the David of Psalm 58. The Psalm 58 David is explosive. In Psalm 57, if it it could be summed up with, Yahweh, come save me. Then Psalm 58 could be summed up with, Yahweh, go get him. So as we explore these difficult psalms, there'll be Psalm 58 today and then Psalm 59 next week, we see quickly these are red-hot psalms written in the heat of righteous anger. David is rightly upset over the righteous, unholy, unjust rulers of this world. These are the psalms that are never preached in the seeker-friendly mega churches making these imprecatory psalms like 58 and 59 really the untouchables of Scripture. I mean, can you imagine trying to fit these psalms in one of their topical series on how to be a super-duper awesome Christian? It just doesn't work. And so it is with these imprecatory psalms and the verses and the prayers that are seen throughout the throughout Psalter. Generally, there are considered six distinctly imprecatory psalms in the Psalter, 58 and 59 being two of them. And David is always the author of these psalms because David is the anointed king of Israel. And as king, he is the leader of the military, the shepherd of Israel to protect the nation, to protect his sheep, so he has a heightened sense of protection against threats. Now remember, imprecate means to invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies, or those perceived to be God's enemies. And interestingly, the imprecatory psalms are quoted twice as many times in the New Testament as in non-imprecatory psalms. And we find even Jesus Christ quoting an imprecatory psalm. So the testimony of the New Testament is they had no problem with these imprecatory psalms. And we read of David's imprecation, you remember, against Doeg a couple weeks back in Psalm 52 when when he prayed, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Now here in Psalm 58, again, we see David's imprecation, not against one man, but more generally, against the rulers, the judges, of the nation of Israel. The focus of the imprecation expanding up the ladder from the wicked Doeg to Saul and the religious leaders. For it is believed that following the massacre of the priests and their families at Nob by Doeg, that Saul sought judicial top cover through the rulers, the judge of Israel, declaring any man a traitor, Who aided or abetted David? That person would be considered enemy number one to the nation of Israel. I mean, we can imagine that, can't we? That the people of Israel might swing to the cause of David after Saul's slaughter of the innocent priests and their families and the whole town of Nob? Saul is ruthless, but Saul is shrewd. He makes a proclamation legally against David and anyone who allies with David, to threaten those who may be sympathetic to David, who might help David as king over Saul. For Saul knew better than anyone the popularity that David enjoyed as the warrior of Israel who killed his tens of thousands. So David responds by going on the offense in this psalm, writing more as a prophet than a coming king by declaring in God's name the arraignment and the conviction of the unjust rulers and judges of Israel who have brought this legal pressure in attempting to coalesce the nation against him. You know, David's position may be weak as he sits in that cave in Adullam with the walls closing in on him, but he responds boldly in this psalm, calling upon the highest authority and justice. For this is a psalm about two opposing judgments, one earthly and one heavenly. The corrupt judges coming from the corrupt, corrupt judgments coming from the corrupt judges of this corrupt world, up against the righteous judgment from the only righteous judge of all eternity. So you have Saul and his minions on one side and David and Yahweh on the other, and it is no contest. Clearly, the confidence and strength that exudes from David's words in this psalm is due to his unshakable faith in the confidence and strength of Yahweh to conquer the wicked of this world. And this explains the red-hot tone of Psalm 58. David is on fire for righteousness because Yahweh is on fire for righteousness. David is not praying to the squishy, mamby-pamby God-worshipped in evangelicalism today that yearns for acceptance and to be considered relevant to the fallen world, to the community around them. That is not the God David's praying to. He is praying to the same strong God we remembered in our Lord's Supper this morning. The same God who wiped out millions, maybe billions, due to their corruption and sexual perversion with a worldwide flood. The same God who rained down fire and brimstone, flaming Sodom and Gomorrah off the map for their perversion. The same God who killed the firstborn of Egypt and drowned the army of Pharaoh for their rebellion. The same God who killed Herod with worms for glorifying himself. And the same God who killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. He is the same strong, righteous God who does not change. As Hebrews states, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You see, God has the same perfect hatred he has had for all eternity. And he hasn't changed that for any generation of men and women. And we need this perspective today from David toward the wicked rulers and judges of this world more than ever. As we see Christians being terrorized by the wicked rulers and judges of this age. First, there was a the legalization of abortion in 1973, which has proved to codify one of the grandest wholesale slaughters of innocent life. The second was the legalization of gay marriage in 1996. The first kills life, the second kills marriage, both kill the family. By attacking the essence of motherhood, fatherhood, and the raising of children, and thereby making null and void the most fundamental building block of healthy societies and nations, and that's the family. But the wicked rulers aren't done yet. It seems their lust for depravity has only just begun. Now seeking to indoctrinate the next generation by normalizing transgenderism and pedophilia, by using vile parades and highly sexualized story hours to groom our children. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Even promoting human trafficking at the border and easing the laws that protect children, that separate predatory adults from children. And this is all brought to you by the same kind of wicked rulers that David faced. Today, in the form of wicked politicians, government agencies, and judges that seem to revel in unrighteousness. Right now we see wave after wave of this evil. This darkness, it's washing upon the shores of the human heart. Darkening further and further with each relentless wave, the sand of the human heart. Surely we are approaching that time referred to in scripture as the days of Noah. And what were those days like? What were those days of Noah like? How wicked were they? Well, Genesis tells us. It reads, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The evil hearts pre-flood and the evil hearts David faced, that's what we're facing today. David, tucked away in that cave in Adullam, stood as a light to the unrighteous. And we are to stand today as a light to the unrighteous. For what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Spiritually, we should be as separate as oil and water. So they will seek to cancel Christians, even permanently, just as Saul and his minions tried to cancel David permanently. And always, and especially for Christians, whenever evil advances, it does not do so in a vacuum. The objector must be silenced. We have seen this today with censorship, really rearing its ugly head in the land of the free, attacking free speech under the ruse of, well, they're just spreading misinformation. If you have a biblical worldview, if you share the gospel, they're going to say that's in misinformation. So as we descend the slippery slope into cancel culture, first they'll come for our free speech, And then they'll come for the rest. Continuing with with what began with Stephen, the first martyr of the church nearly 2,000 years ago. That's where it's all headed. The unjust rulers in the form of politicians and government agencies targeting the only opposition that ever mattered. The true church, the true believers in Jesus Christ. That's all that's going to be left. The professors, they always fall away at the slightest rumblings of opposition, because although they profess Christ, they will deny him by their deeds. It is the true church that should rightly be the final counterculture in the end. Slowly but surely, all but the true Christians will fall in line, but only we will be left standing. They will all say yes to the vices of this world, they will all stand with the unjust rulers of this world. They will say yes to homosexuality. They will say yes to go at gay marriage. Yes to abortion. Yes to transgenderism. And now they'll say yes to grooming children. And they'll say yes to pedophilia. And on and on. But we stand as David stands here in this psalm. We stand with a righteous anger. Righteous anger that says, shatter their teeth, break out their fangs, blunt their arrows, melt them like a snail in the sun. Jesus modeled this righteous anger when he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And one day he's going to say, woe to this wicked world. In the meantime, all we got is what David clinged to, our steadfast faith. Not revenge, not retribution, not restitution, not in this life. So all we can do is place our faith in God's righteousness to one day prevail, to vindicate his own in the future. But in the present, we must always be in opposition to the wicked, unjust rulers of this world, in opposition to those who command what God forbids and forbid what God commands. Just as David and the greater David were always in opposition to them. But as a true church, has always been on opposition, haven't we? We've been called the unholy sect of Judaism because we oppose Judaism. We've been called the nonconformists because we oppose the crown of England. We've been called Protestants because we opposed and protested against the cult of Roman Catholicism. And it's soon we will be called criminals because we oppose their woke, God hating religion. Ever wonder why of all the persecuted minorities, it's always the Jews and the Christians that it's become fashionable to hate with an unrighteous hate? Well, what does this look like today? There was a story that ran last week in the news of a Christian politician in Great Britain who was canceled by seven different organizations and suspended by his own political party for tweeting out his religious views. Ken Lawal, who had been a counselor at the North Northampton Unitary Council in England for two years tweeted on June 29th that naked men were illegally parading in front of minors during LGBTQ pride events. Lowallah Christian, who found the parade behavior offensive and immoral, took to Twitter to condemn it. This is what he wrote. When did pride become a thing to celebrate? Because of pride, Satan fell as an archangel. Pride is not a virtue, but a sin. Those who have pride should repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. He can save you. He also tweeted Isaiah 3, which reads, "...the expression of their faces answers them. And they declare their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to their soul, for they have dealt out evil on themselves." This tweet has subsequently led to, led to Lewall's life being, quote-unquote, torn apart. According to the press release from the London-based Christian Legal Center, Luwal explained that he'd been suspended by his local conservative party after issuing the tweet and that an investigation against him, against him is pending at party headquarters. He also reportedly had to resign from his position as a trustee He was also suspended from an academy council member for children 11 to 18. You know, this is how it begins. And then it advances quickly to arrest and imprisonment. We've seen that already in Canada, haven't we? With Tim Stevens and James Coates. This should make us angry just as David's persecution made him angry. And you know, you could actually build a biblical doctrine of righteous anger over unjust rulers and unrighteous persecution. Listen to David in Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? Do I not revile those who rise up against you? I hate them with an utmost hatred. They've become my enemies. Now this gives us perspective on the difficult tone of Psalm 58 from David, doesn't it? To understand David's reaction to those described in Psalm 2 as the kings of the earth that take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. David reminds us there's no middle ground and there never was. When you boil it down, it's always been about those who hate God driving the world against those who love God. So now back to our psalm. David presents to us two grand features that stand out. One is David's righteous anger. Toward the wicked rulers. The second is David's steadfast faith. In the heavenly judge. In whom he has clearly taken refuge. After all, David ends this psalm. With this remarkable declaration of his faith. In his heavenly judge. When it says, And men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now this psalm breaks out neatly into three sections. And one can imagine these three in terms of a divine courtroom in heaven. Verses 1 through 5, the indictments are declared. Verses 6 through 8, the judgment is called for from the bench. And then verses 9 through 11, the execution of judgment to come. Verses 1 through 5, let's look at these indictments. It reads, do you speak righteousness, O God's? Do you judge with equity, O sons of men, knowing heart you work unrighteousness? On earth you prepare a path for the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a death cobra that stops up its ear. So it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. So right away, we notice two things. First, David begins with two questions for his persecutors. Second, they are dripping with sarcasm. David indictments question their character. They, he questions their morality. David is outraged at their corruption, the corruption that he's now feeling the sting of in a cave in Adullam as he sits there on the run all alone with nothing. This is betrayal, first by his father-in-law Saul, And now by those who should be the moral compass for the nation of Israel. You ever feel that way? Your worst nightmare realized when your defenders turn against you? This thing of betrayal here is palpable. To David, they have acted against him. And worse, they have acted against Yahweh. David says, do you speak? Do you act? David couldn't believe these men of so-called integrity are silent. Asking, where is your righteous voice, O gods? To be clear, this isn't referring to the little gods' heresy pushed by the health, wealth, prosperity cults, but rather poking these unjust rulers as supposed mighty men, earthly men of wisdom and justice who consider themselves to be gods. So what is the standard David is holding these unjust rulers up to? Listen to Psalm 9. But Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. Yahweh will judge the world in righteousness and render justice for the people with equity. Yahweh has always been the standard for all law. All moral law as written in his word. Did you know the practice of standing in our country as a judge enters the court was originally and intentionally done out of respect, out of reverence, not for the judge, but for the word of God, the Bible that the judge was holding? For it is the source of all justice. Today, of course, they don't even handle the word of God. It's all about the justice, the judge the man or woman, and not the word of God. Now, in verse 2, we see David answer. And his answer to the two rhetorical questions in verse 1 is a firm no. David is saying these rulers, they are guilty as charged. Not only is their speaking corrupt, but their judging and weighing equitably is also corrupt. Verse 2 reads, No, in your heart you work unrighteousness, On earth you prepare a path for the violence of your hands. The Hebrew of verse 3 renders the preparing a path, a weighing a path as well. Meaning instead of blind justice, they place a finger on the scales of justice, perverting any chance of righteousness. The scales of justice are corrupted to be the scales of injustice. But this weighing could also refer to the weighing of money, which was how money was counted back then. By weight, meaning what? Meaning they take bribes. Is that not timely, given what we've heard the last couple of weeks about the past foreign policy dealings of, uh, of our current president when he was vice president, taking bribes for in exchange for political influence? But did you notice the direction of the corruption from David in verse 2? First it began in the heart. They work unrighteousness, then to the hand to prepare a path for violence. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked, and worse they do, I don't even know it. And notice the indictment for the violence falls not necessarily on the perpetrator of the violence, but on the unjust judge that corruptly perverts justice. They hold the most guilt. So the blood is on whose hands? The unjust rulers and judges. Verse 3 reads, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those, these who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. Here David speaks both of the unjust judges and more broadly the unconverted in general, explaining what is commonly known as the depravity of man or original sin. If you don't believe in these doctrines or if they're brand new to you, consider what G.K. Chesterton said a hundred years ago. He said the doctrine of original sin is the only philosophy that has been empirically validated by 3,500 years of human history. If you have never contemplated the true origins of wickedness or the depravity of man, this verse should be helpful because it couldn't be more clear. Perhaps this verse was on the mind of Paul in Ephesians 2 when he wrote, speaking of the fallenness of man outside of Christ, when he said, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, all also, formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Did you catch that phrase? By nature. Paul is saying, the children, that you are children of wrath at birth, just as David says in Psalm 51 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Of course, not referring to David's mother being mother's iniquity, but his own from conception. When he says the wicked are estranged from the womb, what does that mean? Estranged from what? From the womb. We're somewhat familiar with the term estranged. We hear a husband is estranged from their wife. But this estrangement is estrangement from God. This is an estrangement which is estrangement from the law of God, from conception. Man is totally separated, totally alienated, and totally hostile to God. Romans 8 describes this estrangement from God. In Romans 8, it, it reads, "...for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace." Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Do you know what this is saying? It's just saying the unconverted man is unwilling and unable to overcome his estrangement from God. They are unwilling and they are unable to submit to the law of God. They are unwilling, they are unable to please God. And by the way, this is saying man's precious free will is powerless from birth to save you. This is one of the few times where it's very true that you could say you were born that way. Now Genesis 8 records, and remember this is after Yahweh cleansed the world with the flood. It reads, and Yahweh smelled The soothing aroma. And Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. You don't have to teach a baby how to stiffen its back in rebellion. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. Further, the depravity of man does not mean we are as evil as we could be, although we could be. In our unconverted state, we have the capability to be a Hitler. He was no anomaly. He was just a fuller expression of our depravity. The depravity of man doesn't refer to the depth of our depravity, but to the breadth of our depravity, meaning sin infects every part of man or woman from birth so that there's no part unaffected by sin, meaning our depravity is already baked in the cake From conception. With their depraved hearts being sin factories. Evidenced by their pouring forth wicked words. And that's why David says, well, from another verse, it says, From the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Is there any wonder David would say in verse 3, Those who speak falsehood wander in error from birth. For all unconverted are liars. Why? Because outside of Christ, they are the sons of the father of lies. Remember what Jesus said in John 8 to the unbelieving Jews. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the wicked are not only wicked innately from birth, but they are wicked in practice, speaking falsehood. The wicked fruit emanating from the wicked heart. And next we see the devastating effect this has on others. Look at verses 4 and 5. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a death cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Their lies and deceits are like poison of a serpent, for they, is, they are as lethal as a snake bite. You want to test this today? Ask this simple question to one of these woke cult members. Ask them, what is a woman? And as you know, one of our Supreme Court justices was asked this in her deposition in her, uh, before she got on the court. And she had no idea. Imagine that, all that education and no smarter than a four-year-old. That is poison. That is the venom of a serpent. They send out venom, but they, do not he- they hear nothing. They hear no truth. And we know people like this. They're unteachable, know-it-alls, who value not the wisdom and experience of others. They are like the deaf cobra that stops up its ears. This paints a stark picture, a dangerous, poison-packed, ideologue that listens to no one. And as verse 5 indicates, not even its owner or its commands. They have thrived in rebellion to God and are immune to any input, good or bad. To the unjust rulers of Psalm 58, justice and righteousness don't commute, compute. They are as dangerous as a venomous snake. And is it any wonder that the creature that deceived Adam and Eve and brought about the fall of man was described as a serpent. Well, we've heard the indictments declared by David. Next, we're going, to point, we're going to turn to point two in your outline. Verses six through eight. The judgment is called for from the bench. It reads, O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away. As it goes along like the miscarriages of a woman, which never behold the sun. It is here in Psalm 58, when some may object to David's prayer for God to fight, to crush the evil rulers, this ruthlessness may be surprising to many who are unfamiliar or unapproving of God's righteous anger in action. For those who think that the that God is, of the New Testament is the God of love and the God of the Old Testament, Is the God of anger? I want you to do as Bodie says. Read the New Testament all the way. All the way to the right. Case in point, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Having a name written on him... Which no one knows except himself, and be clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God. The Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The bottom line God is fierce about righteousness. His name will be vindicated. In these verses, David stacks up image after image representing the punishment and curses that are due to these venomous evil rulers who refuse to hear, who refuse to repent. You can forget about forgiveness. They don't want forgiveness. You can forget about mercy. They don't want mercy. The only thing left is the swift judgment of God and the damnation of hell. And David gives it to them in this imprecatory psalm, praying that God would end their influence and that God would bring them to nothing. Again, David's faith is steadfast in the power of God to bring the ruin of his enemies. Listen to verse 6. O oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouths. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. David is saying, render the obstinate wild beasts that come against him harmless. Take away their weapons to kill and maim by breaking their teeth and fangs. In the animal world, these are lethal killers. David is saying, tame them. Next, David adds two more images in his plea for God's help. Verse 7 let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be his headless shafts. The first flowing away like water gives the idea of something of a localized flood that washes away with its power. It could also refer to the pouring out of a container of liquid on the ground where it's quickly absorbed and disappeared. Then David moves. From the image of water to the blunting of their arrows. David used this image from last week's Psalm, Psalm 57, describing his enemies as the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. The warrior David, who knows weapons of war, compares those weapons to the damaging power of the tongue. So, in view here is the blunting or the silencing of those voices that have stirred up a conspiracy against him. Next in verse 8, we have perhaps the most graphic and most solemn of these images of the wrath to be unleashed as David concludes his call for judgment from the bench. Verse 8 reads, Let them be as a snail, which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman, which never behold the sun. First, the reference to his enemies being as a snail, that dissolves. Now, although a snail does not, in fact, melt away, the the picture David paints here is of a lowly creature that seems to move along on a self-destructive path. David is praying that God would hasten its progress to meet its end. David's next expression of the miscarriages or stillborn is even more cryptic. The idea of life thought to be there one moment and suddenly gone the next. David wants the unjust rulers To meet a similar end and simply disappear from this world. That they would be cut off by the Lord. That they would not see another light of day. For David to reach such a sobering request. Reminds us anew of his passion for justice. In other words, only someone in their desperation would go there. To this extreme of a metaphor of a miscarriage. Someone else was in similar dire straits was Job. He uttered such a curse on himself, no less. It reads, Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job answered and said, Let the day on which I was born was to be born. Let the the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a man is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God seek it from above, nor light shine on it. Next Third point in your outline, we see verses 9 through 11, the execution of the judgment to come. Verse 9 tells us, before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the living and burning alike. Now here David looks ahead to the future. He has declared the indictments, filed against the unjust rulers. He has called for the judgment from the divine bench, and now suddenly It is finished. The judgment has come. David looks to the future where righteousness reigns. The idea here is the Lord moves swiftly to vindicate the psalmist. So quickly, in fact, that before the flame can touch the pots, their plans are thwarted. David was there as they had him. His goose was cooked. But God in a moment intervenes, bringing judgment to the wicked and reward to the righteous by sweeping away everything, by clearing the deck denying the wicked of their satisfaction by sweeping away the living and the burning alike. Now the result, verse 10. The righteous will be glad when he beholds the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Clearly, this is not a psalm of half measures. This is not a psalm of pleasant narratives. This is a psalm of bold indictments, bold judgments, and bold action taken by a bold god who is righteous perfectly righteous and because he is perfectly righteous he must perfectly judge that which is unrighteous and look at who rejoices it is the righteous it is the righteous will be glad when he beholds the vengeance the wicked blown away like chaff the righteous flourishing but david sees that yahweh is not yet done he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. What on earth does this mean? Well, this is hyperbolic, describing their rejoicing in terms of a military victory. Bathing the feet in the blood of the enemy is not so much a ritual bathing in blood as it is the wading through blood that's left as a result of the carnage of battle, thus, putting an exclamation point on the utter defeat of the enemy. But what a celebration by the victors over the unjust rulers. Literally a hot-blooded response shown by the righteous who are fierce about justice. Are you fierce about justice? Just as fierce about justice as our Savior was fierce about justice. Just how fierce was he? Consider the remarkably similar messianic Isaiah 63, which reads, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bosra? This one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your clothing red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. From the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. And I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. And my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger. And I made them drunk in my wrath. And I brought down their lifeblood to the earth. That's how fierce Jesus Christ is about righteousness. For judgment belongs to him and him alone. The one who alone atoned for our sins is also the one who alone executes judgment, his ultimate judgment, trampling the wicked in his wrath. Finally, we come to the climax. Verse 11. For one of the most encouraging conclusions In all the Psalter. It reads. And men will say. Surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God. Who judges on earth. So our confidence in the anticipated judgment. Of the unjust rulers. Now and in the future will be confirmed. Now and will be connected. And confirmed. By these two declarations. And these are so sweet to our ears. First the righteous are rewarded. Second. There's a judge who judges on earth. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. So take heart, brothers and sisters, that although judgment will tarry, it will come. And when it comes, the righteous will be vindicated. It is here that David has taken refuge in these great truths. For the persecution of his tormentors, the unjust rulers, not in the things of the flesh, but in the promise of God that there is a reward coming and Because God will judge the unrighteous. What a pleasant wrap-up to one tough-as-nails psalm. We have the same promise as we consider our tormentors. The wicked politicians, the wicked government agencies. It might be the DOJ, the FBI, the CDC, and their wicked judges. Well, their coming judgment is as good as done. The reward is for us. While the just Judgment comes upon them. The wicked world lulls us into accepting. Because the wicked have prevailed, it always be that way. So what we need more than anything is the patience of Job and the faith of David in these two unshakable truths. For the righteous, the reward of God. For the unrighteous, the wrath of God. Guaranteed, two paths. The destiny of neither path is in doubt. Just as Scripture speaks of only two paths. One leading to eternal life and the other leading to eternal destruction. The unrighteous in this world are those who take up with the rulers and their wickedness, and they will incur the wrath of God. While the righteous are those who stand like David against what is vile and will stand before God rewarded. So, one question you may be asking is Do we follow the lead of David here? Do we curse our enemies? Well, the short answer is we follow our Lord in whom we are to be conformed who commanded us to love our enemies, who cried out while in the midst of the greatest betrayal in history on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. So what do we do with these imprecatory psalms? With its heavy prayers of curses and damnation on our enemies. On one hand, our Savior has shown us the way of the way of forgiveness on the other hand, these judgments of God are audible sermons. They have a voice that we must listen to, reminding us that God is fierce about unrighteousness and he will judge all unrighteousness. For every unrighteous deed and thought carries a punishment with it, everyone. And they must be paid for in only two ways either by Christ on the cross, or by the sinner in hell for eternity. You may ask, does God know about every sin? Not only does He know about every sin and every sinful thought, He knows about every mercy granted. Think of the countless mercies and blessings that we enjoy every day. We have so much that He has blessed us with, so much to be thankful for, every beat of our heart, every breath in our lungs. And yet how can we be void of gratitude? To God for everything. So, this morning, if you're cavalier about your sins against Him and ungrateful for the mercies and blessings He has showered you with, I beg of you, fear God, examine yourself, and repent. As Peter says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. If you find you fail the test, cry out to Him this morning, because He will in no way cast you out. For He came to save His people dying on a cross, buried and raised three days later, resurrected to save his people, people just like you and me, from our sins. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this psalm from David. We're so thankful for his lesson that we must be fierce about righteousness and unrighteousness. We must be forgiving of our enemies, and we must maintain a steadfast faith. That in the end, you will make all things right, Lord. You will bring wrath to the unrighteous. And you will bring a reward to those who are righteous. Not that we are righteous, but we are wrapped in Christ's righteousness, clothed in his righteousness. And for that, there is a reward coming. And in that, we encourage. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.